the Seychelles Islands, an archipelago of 115 islands in the Western Indian Ocean, just off the East African coastline. Not everyone will have heard of the Seychelles, but those who have make some pretty quick associations. White sand, tropical sun, crystal clear waters, luxury holidays, a romantic honeymoon. What most people don't know is that Seychelles has a dark history associated with slavery since the islands were first settled 250 years ago. And for the next few decades, the islands would be used as a strategically important base for the storage and transportation of Africans captured on the mainland. The sad stories of these people have been all but forgotten. Their mention in historical texts largely focused instead on the monetary value of the slave. This is Seychelles and the Legacy of Slavery, a podcast series in eight parts. My name is Hajira Amla. I'm a Seychellois and I'm coming to you from the Seychelles. I can trace my family lineage back all the way to the arrival of the first of my ancestors to the Seychelles in 1778. My family is white, but like most of the other white families in Seychelles, we are slowly becoming mixed race as younger generations grow up in a more integrated society. The reason that I'm making this podcast series is that sadly, we're not telling the story of slavery in Seychelles. Maybe we find it embarrassing, both for the descendants of slave owners and for the descendants of slaves too. Perhaps the younger generations feel this shameful aspect of our history is not relevant to their lives now. Certainly, on the surface, it seems that this colourful island nation of just a 100,000 inhabitants is happy and peaceful, and the repercussions of slavery are no longer obvious. But even before the turning point that was the murder of George Floyd, I've been thinking about the horrors and deprivations that the slaves in Seychelles must have experienced, and how a white elite narrative has glossed over that history to make the erasure of these people's identities and cultures sound like a good thing, that they had been civilized by their owners, that they had been saved by Christianity, and that their new island home, from which there was no escape, was somehow better than the homes they had been brutally snatched from. African men, women and children were auctioned, transported and inherited like nothing but beasts of burden. So for quite some time, the worth of a white landowner was measured largely by the size of his land and the number of slaves he owned. The Seychelles was first settled by the French, and to be honest, it was mostly done because they didn't want the British or anyone else claiming the territory before they did. On the 27th of August, 1770, 15 whites, 5 Indians and 8 African slaves were the motley crew that comprised the very first settlers in Seychelles. After the creation of the settlement, 
l'établissement du roi en Mahé in 1778, the French settlers brought more slaves from Réunion, today still a French department in the Indian Ocean, to establish the foundations of the island's plantation economy. Comfortably out of the cyclone region, the Seychelles Islands were ideally placed in the warm waters of the Indian Ocean to act as a strategically important trading post between Africa and the Indian subcontinent. Long ocean voyages would benefit from the plentiful supply of timber for ships in need of repair. Turtles and giant tortoises were captured and kept on board ships for a fresh supply of meat, and the settlers produced cash crops of cotton, coconut oil, copra, maize, and cinnamon. Seychelles was not just a new colony, but also a better location for the slave trade. Slaves were brought in from Zanzibar, an island in the Indian Ocean near Tanzania, transited to Seychelles before being shipped off to numerous South American countries, such as Brazil, and also to the West Indies. The expansion of the slave trade was largely due to the fast development of sugar cane plantations, cotton and tobacco in the Caribbean and America. Records show that the slave trade expansion was supported by African tribe leaders who helped capture people for the slave traders. This was done in order to get rid of rebellious tribe members or rival ethnic groups, and these people were traded for weapons or clothes. So if you look at the daily life of slaves in Seychelles, this was really a, a very, very hard existence. Um, they were, from the very beginning, put to work on the soil. They grew cotton and maize crops. They grew rice in swamps where rivers were blocked. And they also had to grow cassava, um, known locally as mayok, for their own subsistence. So they were not even allowed to eat the same things as the, as the white folk would eat. Um, if there was no bullock, then a male slave would have to turn the coconut mill to produce oil, coconut oil, for export. Slave children, as well, would also be given to white children as playmates or and servants, and often um, this would create circumstances whereby um, the white children were basically taught from a very young age that they could um, act with impunity when it came to slaves, um, and it created some real tyrants. Um, in terms of the living arrangements, um, slaves would have um, straw cas or houses um, behind the main house um, and there was also a block what was called a block nearby where slaves would be locked up um, and punished um, by their masters for any infringements um, there were also in the early days no roads really um, even on the mainland of Mahi, so this would mean 
that some people, especially women, um, would have to be carried in a hammock or a chair, which would be carried by slaves through the footpaths. Um, and especially on a, an island like Mahi, which is very mountainous, uh, this would be really, really difficult work. Um, but transport to the other parts of the islands were also carried out, um, and in fact more commonly carried out by boat. But these boats, of course, would be rowed by slaves. Each day before dawn, the bell would sound, calling them to work. Their movement was further restricted by the firing of a cannon, ordering them all out of the tiny town at dusk. Their personal lives revolved around their straw hut, the garden plot, and the casier or fish trap that they would use to catch fish. For the male slaves, they were expected to do the toughest physical labor imaginable. Before settlers arrived in the Seychelles, there were no fruit-bearing trees that could provide sustenance, only coconuts and palmist, or heart of palm, and the granite rocks and waterways were reportedly teeming with massive saltwater crocodiles. Within the next eight years, the first town would be constructed, meaning huge trees had to be felled from the dense tropical rainforests, and hard granite boulders had to be broken apart by hand in order to erect the first permanent buildings. The forests had to be cleared to make way for paths that traverse the islands, swamps had to be drained, and the shallow, sun-bleached soil had to be tilled to yield vegetables, fruits, herbs, and spices. On coconut plantations, slaves were usually expected to husk a certain number of coconuts per day, with severe consequences if they fell short of their quotas. All of the most back-breaking work involved in conquering virgin territory had to be done by the African slaves, their malnourished bodies sweating in the equatorial humidity and relentless sun, and all this while being told that they were intellectually, physically, and spiritually inferior to the white men who oversaw them. For female slaves, although most were expected to work the fields and look after farm animals, many were also put into service at the Grand Cas, or the big house of the plantation owner. A housemaid's job in days such as these was no easy task. With no running water on the islands, everyday tasks such as washing dishes, laundry, cooking and cleaning would involve either carrying dirty items to the river and then back again, or carrying water to the house. Fabrics such as printed cotton were rare and extremely expensive in a remote place such as Seychelles, so the mistress of the house would be moved to fits of rage if any item of clothing was deemed to have been damaged by a servant. Similarly, if any item, however trivial, went missing, the maid would have been the first suspect, even if it had been just lost or misplaced. 
Taking care of the master's white children was also a task for the female slave. I wonder how it would have felt for a young female slave, knowing that the very child you were helping to raise might someday own you when the master of the house passed away. Of course, if you were unlucky enough to have been visited by the master at night, the arrival of a mixed-race child would be both a source of security and unease for the new mother. Most masters who sire children with their female slaves would not acknowledge paternity, but they would provide some sort of inheritance for the child. The child would invariably bear its father's name, though, because most slaves bore the surname of their masters. On the downside, the arrival of such a child would inevitably give rise to cruel treatment from the mistress of the house if there was one, and that would be directed both to the child and to the mother. A slave would never really be able to enjoy a sense of security because the lack of freedom and rights would mean that any scant kind of comfort or good treatment they might enjoy under a current set of circumstances could be just ripped away at a moment's notice, just like the winds could change. For a slave, there was not much chance to have a hope for a normal family life that many people take for granted. Children stayed with their mother. Romantic partnerships couldn't be counted on to last for long because of the nature of slavery. And this was further complicated as well by the fact that there were so many white Don Juans visiting the slave huts at night. Family life was certainly not encouraged because the slave household could be divided if the master or the master's son decided to move to a different island or take one of the slaves to a new place and of course with the attitude that the slave owner could um, do as he willed to the women and often young girls in their possession this of course did not encourage family life and behavior. To me, the legacy of slavery in Seychelles is most firmly seen in this aspect of Seychelles life because those patterns still repeat themselves even today, long, long, long after slavery disappeared. But those habits and those patterns of behavior are still present in the fact that women don't generally have men to rely on when it comes to partnership for raising children. 
And this is really sad because I hear a lot of politicians and leaders in this country saying that Seychelles is a matriarchal society. And this is just repeated as a catchphrase. But to my understanding, a matriarchal society would indicate that the woman has power, the woman has agency. But in this circumstance, the woman has no choice but to fend for herself and her child as best she can. The Anglican bishop, French Chang Him, wrote a thesis about the dilemma of cohabitation in a majority Christian society. And he explored these conflicting values of Christianity with the sexual decadence and trauma that was caused by slavery. He connected the dots between single-parent households um, and also the mistrust between men and women in relationships right back to the Code Noir, um, which legitimized um, this practice of slavery in legal terms. And of course, if you were a slave, there was no hope of justice. There was no hope that justice would be done if you had been wronged in some way. Um, there are records, for instance, of a slave woman being found murdered. And of course, maroons or escaped slaves were blamed or suspected. Um, it says she had been stripped um, and then the captured maroon who was charged with this murder and the slave that he accused in turn were both then subsequently found dead in jail. Slaves could be dragged to the block in the master's household. They could be thrashed or alternatively they could even be shot legally. According to the local edicts, they could be flogged, they could be put to work in irons. Um, if they were found in town at any time on a feast day, um, so a feast day would be a special holiday, or if they were found in town on a Sunday, um, or if they were found in town um, on any normal day after curfew, which would, was 7pm, if they didn't have a a permission slip from their masters. Um, and, you know, they were portrayed constantly as this subversive race that were persistent thieves and they, they were only good at drinking. Um, and in fact, slave owners themselves could be punished if they were not seen to keep their slaves in order, if they didn't discipline them, if uh, they didn't keep their slaves on their estate for the majority of the time. So this helped to enforce the status quo and ensured that 
the system of slavery and endemic racism would continue for many years to come. Join me for part two of Seychelles and the Legacy of Slavery, where we'll explore the involvement of Seychelles in the notorious transatlantic slave trade and the wealth it created for the white colonialists who had settled in the Seychelles.